Welcome back to another episode of Single Payer Radio. Single Payer Radio is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We are an affiliate of the Kentucky chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. And we're proud to be a community partner with Forward Radio WFMP 1065. Please join our radio family as a financial contributor, if you can, or a volunteer. We're an all-volunteer community radio station. Go to forwardradio.org. And to learn more about Kentuckians for single-payer health care, please go to our website at kyhealthcare.org or follow the group on Facebook. Kay Tillo is the chair of Kentuckians for Single-Payer Health Care, and you can contact Kay at nursenpo at aol.com. That's nursenpo at aol.com. Single-Payer Radio can be heard weekly now on Forward Radio. That's on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m. and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. If you can't pick us up on the airwaves, you can pick us up on your computer live uh, by listening to the stream. Or you can go to the SoundCloud and pick us up in the archives. The views and opinions expressed on single-payer radio are those of the speakers and not the station. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the group. We're recording today's show, Wednesday, August the 26th. And this morning, there are over 178,000 COVID-19 deaths in the U.S. Leading today's conversation, again, since earlier this spring, are retired surgeons and emeritus professors at U of L School of Medicine, Drs. Michael Flynn out of Louisville and Dr. Eugene Shively of Campbellsville, Kentucky. Dr. Flynn, Dr. Shively, what's on the agenda for today's show? Uh, Mark, it's good to be here. Um, we're going to talk about uh, for-profit health insurance companies. Uh, let me begin with the usual disclaimer that the views expressed here by me represent my personal views and do not represent the views of the Department of Surgery or the University of Louisville. Uh, my views uh, represent my own personal views and not that of the University of Louisville and the Department of Surgery. Nor they, do they represent the uh, Taylor Regional Hospital. I'd also like to say that some of the data is uh, very fluid. It changes from day to day. And uh, uh, it can be challenged. This data is extremely difficult to come up with. And it's changing. And some of the data is uh, kept secret on purpose to confuse the consumer. Uh, some of the insurance companies make money uh, by having data that's confusing. And this is very common in the pharmaceutical industry and uh, the insurance industry. 
Okay, so we'll let's cut to the chase here. I, what I'd like to do is just make a few comments about why for-profit health insurance or investor-owned companies exist. Uh, make it a comment about how this country is a little different in the 1940s than it is now, and then Gene is going to go through a, uh, a background of history of how we got from being uh, a country that provided insurance to, to provide patient care to uh, insurance to, to, to uh, provide profits for insurance companies. So basically, a fundamental question, what is the purpose of a for-profit investor-owned insurance company? Very simple, it's to make and keep as much money as possible. There's no secret about that. Uh, as Gene <laughs> said, they, they have an assortment of ways to do this, and we, uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that today. Uh, very quick comment. Um, 1946, right after world, the end of World War II, Congress passed the Hill-Burton Act, which was a, a federal funding um, project for both... Uh, Public and non-public, uh, uh, non-profit um, healthcare institutions, where they got grants and loans, with the understanding that they would provide healthcare to those who needed it and couldn't pay for it, and those that lived in the area. Uh, the result of this was a uh, uh, an increase in the number of rural hospitals in uh, this country, especially in the South. And since the 1980s, this has slowly uh, eroded. Rural hospitals are closing, and healthcare is a real major issue in rural America, as Gene knows much better than I. So, Gene, tell us how we got here. Well, it uh, started in uh, Dallas. Uh, there was a lot of people who were sick and didn't have a place to go. So a cattleman... Uh, uh, found a mansion that had 14 rooms. This was in 1903, and uh, it was that kind of the foundation for Baylor University. And uh, they started uh, hospitalizing people there. And then one of the vice presidents for Baylor University realized that um, some of the people had big debts uh, because they were in the hospital, and this affected not only the amount of money they owned uh, Baylor University, but also they had no money to, to live on. So he uh, offered the Teachers uh, Association in Dallas a kind of an insurance policy. You could pay uh, 50 cents a month, and then if you had to go to the hospital, the first week you had to pay, but after that, the insurance provided $5 a day, and that covered um, uh, the rest of your hospitalization up to uh, three more weeks. And that concept grew. Um, it later became uh, Blue Cloths, and then subsequently when doctors got involved, he could be paid by Blue Shield, and up to... 1939 uh, through the depression there were about three million a uh, million people who uh, had some type of insurance uh, 
Now, during World War II and afterwards, there was price freezing. And so uh, a company who wanted to hire someone couldn't hire them by offering them more uh, salary, but they could offer them insurance. And from approximately 1940 up to the late 50s, the number of people with insurance increased from approximately 10% up to about 60%. The for-profit insurance companies uh, realized that there could be money made in this, and Aetna and Cigna started also offering insurance. The difference was uh, uh, Aetna and Cigna uh, very picked uh, uh, the patients that they insured just like they would uh, for uh, life insurance. If you had coronary artery disease and diabetes, you had to pay lots more for life insurance or you might not be able to get it. Uh, the same thing with health insurance. But Blue Cross Blue Shield accepted everyone, whether you had a pre-existing conditioning or not. And uh, this did pretty well until the mid-90s. Now, it's also interesting that uh, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, was, uh, didn't have to pay taxes until there was a Congress passed an act in, in the 80s where they eventually had to pay taxes. And then by 1994, and I remember when this happened, I had uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield insurance, and I got a letter one day that said that if you want to uh, uh, be part of our for-profit company, you could sell your shares. So I'm assuming that we were, the Blue Cross Blue Shield I was in was a mutual company, and then they were transferring to a for profit company and I could have bought into that. I don't think I did. I kind of wish I had, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but I didn't. So what happened was that uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield was taking on everyone and they were hemorrhaging money. And one of the main reasons that various Blue Cross Blue Shield companies wanted to do this is so they could get into the stock market and make extra money. So they subsequently became for profit, and uh, th there are various Blue Cross Blue Shields companies around uh, the United States. Each state had different companies, but there was an umbrella company that they had to talk into uh, uh, allowing them to go for profit. As they managed to go for profit, the emphasis changed from patient care and uh, taking care of patients to taking care of stockholders and investors. And so we saw the amount of money going uh, to patients changing from about 95% down to 80, or some of them went down to 60%. Uh, and with most of them, or a lot of the money, uh, going uh, to, to investors. Uh, this has progressed uh, to what we see today, where most of the uh, insurance companies in the United States are, are making a lot of money, and the investors are doing well, and the CEOs are making a huge amount of money. 
Yeah, we today we have over a thousand for-profit health insurance companies, and they have anywhere from fifteen to thirty different plans, which is an insanely complex system. Which I hope we'll get into some of the details in a little bit. But let me let me tell two quick stories and, and then do something, and maybe we can talk a little bit about medical loss ratio. Now, I, I got in, interested in these for-profit health insurance companies about 20, 25 years ago. I think I've told this, told this story in an, in an earlier program. I had taken um, a couple of skin cancers off of, uh, an older gentleman who at that time was probably about my age, <laughs> Uh, and uh, they come in the office. I was taking the stitches out, and he was sitting in a chair, and his wife was sitting over, kind of, you know, kind of across the room a little bit. It's a small room, and we were chatting, and, and she starts to cry, and I, I didn't think I was doing anything particularly difficult to, you know, hurting her husband. But and it, it turns out these people were from western Kentucky. They had a rural business of farming. I don't know if they farmed fruit or, or, or pigs or exactly what it was, but it was something they'd spend their whole lives uh, doing, had a lot of other medical health problems, and they were about to go bankrupt. And they'd had this family farm. They were looking forward to to um, you know, passing it on to some of their their family members. So, I mean, that's how I got started in in this whole thing. I never did find out what happened to them, but it was a very it was just really it was terrible. Listen to this poor woman, woman cried. So that that's that's kind of one one kind of personal story. Second story, we talked a little bit about uh, the Nixon, but one of the things that. Um, went on early in the lead-up to uh, Nixon's resignation um, were a series of stories in the Washington Post. Uh, they were written by a couple of reporters named Woodward and Bernstein. This fellow Woodward uh, would meet with a source that the guy called Deep Throat in parking garages at night around Washington, D.C., uh, it turned out some many years later, decades later, that this, he was a high-level member of the FBI. And one of the first things he told Woodward was to follow the money. And so in a roundabout way, that's what I want to do right now, is follow the money. So if you pay a premium to a for-profit health insurance company... Uh, it goes to a number of different sources. And as Jane has pointed out in one of our earlier programs, uh, almost a third of the revenue in the health care in this country, I, I'm not going to call it a health care system because we really don't have a system. We have a health care, quote, marketplace, quote, unquote, whatever, whatever that represents. So you pay the premium, and it goes to administrative costs, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. Advertising. You know, we've talked to uh, Dr. Krauss from Germany about the German system and Ted Young about the Canadian system. There's not a whole lot of that goes on. Political contributions. I don't think we asked either one of those two about that, uh, but that, that's an important aspect of, of, of how and why for-profit health insurance companies exist. 
uh, executive compensation, which is outrageous, and we've got some of those numbers, um, investor dividends, um, they, they, they make investments, make more money. At the end of the day, when they pay the claims, they call this a medical loss ratio. Now, I mean, if there's anything that kind of gives you an insight into the mindset and the focus and the purpose of for-profit health insurance company is that actually paying for health care is called medical loss ratio. As you said earlier, Gene, Blue Cross and Blue Shield had a 5% medical or uh, administrative costs, and they spent 95% on, on paying for health care before they became for-profit. Um, when they became for-profit, the administrative costs, which are all those things I just mentioned, ranged from 20 to 35%, depending upon whatever they could get away with in whatever market. And as you said, 60, 80 to 65% of, of, of this was spent on health care, not 95%. Medicare currently has a 2% administrative costs. 2%, 98% of the money that goes through Medicare pays for health care. And in Taiwan, which has a national health insurance service, they actually pay less than 2% to cover the costs of health care in that country. So a lot of things, a lot of things to talk about. So where does the money go? Well, uh, under Obamacare, the ACA, uh, part of that law is that at least 80% uh, has to go uh, for patient care. It's interesting that the other 20% is going uh, for administration and uh, for compensation to CEOs, etc., they, as we're set up right now, it's to the insurance company's uh, profit that the cost of uh, medicine goes up. For example, 20% of $100 million is less than 20% of $200 million. So if hospitals are charging more, uh, even though they may not be reimbursed what they're charging, the cost for the insurance company goes up. And so they're making more money because the 20% is higher. The other thing that's happening is uh, a lot of most insurance companies now are charging uh, more for deductibles. Uh, most uh, companies who are paying for insurance are uh, having large deductibles, for example, $5,000 deductible. Another trend, which we haven't heard much about, is that, that uh, the insurance companies are talking uh, companies into uh, self-insuring. So you go into a executive and say, we can offer you a policy 
for 20 to $30 per employee, and we'll take care of the administrative fee. But they don't tell you that uh, the company's taking the risk. So if you have 100 employees and one of them uh, gets an advanced cancer and has a big medical bill, then the, uh, the insurance company is really only paying for the administrative charges and the, uh, the company is paying for the actual medical bills. So the next year, their premiums and their deductibles go up. A similar thing is happening uh, with uh, Medicare and Medicaid. More and more insurance companies are getting very interested in that because there's a lot of money. Uh, it used to be that Medicaid was uh, run by the federal government, but state governments are now hiring for-profit insurance companies to administer uh, Medicaid, and I think we're going to see the same thing happening uh, with uh, Medicare. The, uh, up through April of this year, uh, the healthcare industry, most of which have been insurance companies, have spent uh, $740 million lobbying the Democratic Party, and I'm sure that's dramatically increased uh, since April, and probably this summer. Uh, I'm sure it's dramatically gone up because of the uh, Democratic Convention, and they want to, s to see uh, a, a plan where uh, if we extend uh, uh, Medicare and Medicaid, that they will get the option of administering those uh, plans. One of the Democratic plans is to extend Medicare. so. If we extend Medicare down to age 60, that means that the high-risk patients will be from, uh, taken care of by Medicare and that the insurance companies will have less risk patients and subsequently uh, they will have less risk and make more money. Let me, let me just drop back a little bit to the, the sort of early issue, where, where does the money go? And this was a New York Times article um, in the Sunday Review from November of 2019, uh, in 2018, the single quarter profits for 85 of the top publicly traded for-profit insurance companies. Now, there's 85. We got over a thousand of them. Was just under 50 billion dollars. That's clear profit. So if you multiply that times four. That's $200 billion that, um, I don't know, 8% of, of, the, of the top of the insurance companies are taking out of the system. And, and the other, uh, you know, uh, uh, 915 for-profit insurance companies uh, aren't even accounted for. <clears throat> Now, what we, uh, Gene, you, you talked a little bit about uh, about uh, deductibles. Uh, what I one of the things I'd like to do is just go through the insanity of the complexity of what a person has to deal with if they get insurance from a for-profit insurance company. <clears throat> so you start off with a deductible. 
and this is why that poor woman was crying because they never under they couldn't figure out all, all what 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 was going on. So one, you have a deductible. <clears throat> That's an out-of-pocket cost that you pay <laughs> before the insurance company pays. Problem is, it's very complicated, and it depends on the plan. So if you have a plan, I I was before I retired, I. Uh, had my health insurance from the University of Louisville, self-insured. And they, they, as you mentioned, they, they paid uh, Humana, they paid Anthem, they paid somebody who would change every two or three years to manage the plan. But you've got a lot of people, so the, the, the premiums were relatively low, the deductibles were low, and the coverage was good. Uh, I have a friend out in Crested Butte, Colorado, who manages properties out there, and he has a small business <laughs> consisting of himself and his wife, and they cover his son. I mean, he's got some insanely complicated system, and his his premiums are high, and his deductible is five or six thousand dollars. That's before they pay for anything, just because it's just him and not not not. 100,000 other people. So that, that's the deductibles. <clears throat> and then you have the co-payment. <laughs> so that's what you pay an amount for a service. And again, this is very complicated. And as you said, you know, the, the, the complexity of this just makes people's heads spin. And it depends on the plan and depends on the service. So if you go to an emergency room or an urgent care center or get some physical therapy or get a prescription filled, you pay a copay that may be different depending on what the service is and depending on what the plan is. And then that the, the copay may or may not go to your deductible, and after you've met your deductible, you're, you, you may still get stuck with a copay. I mean, you, you can't win. I mean, and we're not, I'm just getting started here. So now we have this thing called surprise billing. Okay, so this means that the 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 hot, the institutions, the insurance companies have made, they've negotiated with uh, different providers to provide services at a certain level, and um, unfortunately, if you and and if you get a service from a provider who's not in the network, you get a bill. So let's say you, you fall off your bicycle and break something or you know, end up having to go to the emergency room and get a couple of x-rays and the radiologist who reads the x-rays is not in the, in, not in the system, you're gonna get a bill. If you have a hernia repair and the anesthesiologist is not in the system, you're gonna get a bill. And you don't even know this. You go in the emergency room. You, you're not going to. You don't ask them. Well, who's, you know, who's reading the radiology? And when you go get, you know, I had a hernia repaired. I had my appendix removed. Uh, I mean, I knew who they were, but I, I, I don't know that if I'd not been a physician, I would have had the had sense to do this. Two more things. In okay. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, then you've got the issue of the premiums. And again, these things vary uh, depending upon the plans. If you are 
a faculty member or a member of the University of Louisville, you have a low premium and a good plan. If you're a small business owner out in Crested Butte, Colorado, you have an outrageous premium and, and, and an outrageous deductible and outrageous uh, co-payments if there's just the three of you. Uh, allowed amount. Again, th this is just the insane complex. All of these little things just you make it so complicated that it's almost crazy to try to figure out. This is the amount that the insurance company is going to pay for that particular service depending upon which plan you have. So you go to the ER visit, you know, not only you have to deal with the co-pays and <clears throat> the deductibles, you got to figure out what these what they're going to pay for. Same thing with the uh, hernia repair. And then last thing is co-insurance. So you've got all these other things to deal with and then uh, after you've met your deductible you've got to get more insurance because the, depending upon your plan let's say you had fifteen hundred dollars of health expenses expenses you meet your deductible at, but then your plan again maybe it's going to pay seventy percent of the additional costs you get to pay thirty percent a better plan eighty twenty so you've got deductibles, co-payments, surprise billing, premiums, allowed amounts, and co-insurance. There is no other industrialized country in the world that exploits its citizens like this. Okay, let me just tell our listeners that this is single-payer radio on WFMP 106.5 in Louisville with Drs. Michael Flynn and Dr. Eugene Shively. And Dr. Flynn, let me just say that those profit numbers that you talked about, uh, that was last year, correct? Uh, that was last that fall? Was, that was no. 2018. 2018? The article was in the New York Times in 2019. Okay. Well, let me just say that I've, I've seen some uh, reports that during the pandemic, when people are afraid to go to the hospital or to the doctor, that those profits have skyrocketed even more yes and like with uh with some car insurance policies uh, during the pandemic you've give you're getting at least some kind of minimal rebate yeah. because you're not driving health insurance well uh, hell no <laughs> these guys are laughing all the way to the bank no there's there's literally you think about this for i don't know how many months there was no elective surgery right and that is a major, uh, you know, profit maker for uh, hospitals, whether it's a for-profit hospital or a rural, small rural, not-for-profit not hospital. That's a biggie. Right. And, and with no, no uh, elective surgery for a couple of months, that's a, that's a really, really big hit. Well, and, and just before Dr. Shively uh, comes back on, let me just say that I've also seen uh, more reports that more and more middle income level families are forgoing health insurance because you get 12 to 20 grand a year for family policies and more people are saying i'm going to roll the dice this isn't worth it yeah, um, it's, and, it's, and then if they get hit it's uh, it's terrible katie bar the door dr shively now those health insurance companies are supposed either to decrease the premium or pay that money back. It will be very interesting if they do that. 
I can get you a job at the Courier Journal and you can become an investigative reporter and find out if they really do. But by law, they have to pay uh, that money back. And 80% is supposed to go to health care and then they can keep 20%. So we'll see what happens. It will be uh, very, very interesting. Right. Mike, tell me a little bit more about co-insurance. How does that work? Well, uh, as much as, 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 as well as I know about it, you, uh, you know, once you've got your, this is the Medicare, Medicaid, Medigap things that they tack on so that your, your, your 80% of your Medicare is paid for uh, any eighty percent of a charge is uh, if you have Medicare, then you have to take insurance to get the other twenty percent covered. I retired from the Navy <clears throat> Reserve after twenty years, so I'm covered by um, Tricare for life. So doesn't cost me. I mean, the amount of money that I have to pay in a copay or a deductible is is minimal. But these these um, uh, you know, the point that I wanted to make about the coinsurance is I don't have enough personal experience with it, is, is the, the amount of complexity of these um, insurance plans that someone who is, you know, someone works as a storekeeper somewhere or has a small business and, and they have to deal with deductibles, co-payments, surprise billing, premiums, allowed amounts, co-insurance. Uh, that's why that poor woman cried. And that's the, the bankruptcy. You know, Katie bar the door, Mark, is ba medical bankruptcy. Yep. And we have, in this country, 60% uh, of bankruptcies are the result of uh, medical issues. We talked with Ted Young about that. And there are two, there are two components to it. There's the medical costs the bills, the, the you know the insurance costs, the, the 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 prescriptions, all of that stuff, and then there's the economic consequence of whatever the illness is, and the loss of work, loss of income. So you you, you it's kind of a double whammy <clears throat> in which you both you lose you you've lost money or you don't have the money to cover all the costs of of whatever health problem it is, and then. If you've got one of those things that requires, you know, say you 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 get in an automobile accident and you you fracture your your femur and you had a pneumothorax, you, you they operate on you. You spend a couple of days in an ICU, a couple of days in the hospital, and you go into rehab. And um, you know, depending upon what your occupation is, if you had to do something that involved walking, you probably can't work for two or three months. And then, and that's that's a major issue. Uh, it and I don't know if you remember when we talked to Ted Young about this. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist in Canada. And when I looked up some some uh, some data for an article I wrote in Louisville Medicine a while ago, uh, I found an article that indicated that there were no zero medical related bankruptcies in France in uh, 2017 uh let me let me we were talking about kind of where does the money go and one of the things i mentioned was 
the the executive compensation. I mean, this is this is really this is insane. So let me let me just read some some um, some salary benefits here. This is now this goes back a ways. This is uh, this is 2003. Now there's a there's a guy named William McGuire, who uh, represents. Uh, the all-time champion of CEO health insurance compensation. <laughs> 2003, they paid this guy $94 million and change. That's a one-year salary, $94 million and change. The next guy below that, again, 2003, this is a while ago, <clears throat> Larry Glasscock, Anthem, $46 million. Uh, just below that is WellPoint, which is what Blue Cross and Blue Shield used to be. It paid him $37 million. Down the bottom of the list there is Michael McCallum of Humana getting $6 million. So that's 2003. So I can't seem to get this to work. Why do you think these guys deserve uh, so much money? Well, I don't think they deserve that much money, but they're 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 getting it. I can't seem to get this. You you would think a surgeon like you who cuts people's neck halfway off would <laughs> would, would make as much money. Uh, okay, here here's the just a couple more, and then we can move on to something else. So this is now we're at 2019, okay? 16 years later, United Healthcare, a guy named Alan Miller, gets $23 million. Again, this is a one-year salary. This is not a golden parachute. This is not his life's work. This is a one-year salary. And most of this money, not all of it, most of it comes from premiums that are paid with the expectation of getting health care coverage. And that doesn't count stock options. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, they get a little money. They get money from their investments. They get money managing health care plans, like managing University of Loyola or whatever plans they manage. But the majority of the money that comes into for-profit insurance companies is from premiums. Okay, two more quick ones. HCA... Um, they paid this guy $20 million, and then Cigna, a fellow named David Cordani, getting paid $18 million. And this is not, this is just the top guy. When you go down the whole food chain of executives in these insurance companies, the next guy down from uh, this guy, uh, Miller, was probably getting... Eighteen million dollars. <laughs> so it, it's a huge, huge amounts of money that have been extracted, and, and you know they, they're they're smart. They're smart business people, and they figured out back in the '90s that that healthcare in this country was a soft target, and they figured out a way to exploit it, and they've really done a very good job in doing that. Uh, the end result of it is that we have probably some of the worst health care in the world in this country. Um, when you think about 
the, the fact that we've got 30, 40 million people who are uninsured, 30 or 40 million people who are underinsured, uh, and that's before the pandemic. I don't know what it is now. Th those numbers are before the pandemic. We have medical bankruptcies of 200,000 to 800,000 a year, and all the people that have lost their jobs and that had health care because of where they worked don't have health insurance anymore, and they're, they're trying to defund uh, Medicaid and, and Medicare. So, I mean, yeah, it's a fascinating situation we're, we're in from, from the standpoint of just taking care of people that, that every other first world country in the world has figured out a way to do this without wrecking their economy. Well, I've had a little experience uh, with Medicare. Now, I, I came on Medicare a little over a year ago. And Medicare pays about 80%. So you either got to go to an Advantage plan or get a supplement. And then, in addition to your supplement, you've got to get a private insurance for Part D, your prescription plan. And then if you want dental insurance or visual insurance, you've got to get another insurance. Now, you, you, you should have stayed in the Air Force. <laughs> I came very close to doing that. <laughs> I would probably have to have a lot of insurance to take care of cirrhosis. But yeah. anyway, <laughs> so you get a you get a letter every month that tells you what these companies have paid, and then it tells you how much money you saved, and if you. Um, it, it's very difficult to figure out. I've actually spent some time trying to figure out if I actually save money or not, and it, it, it's extremely difficult. Like the supplement, uh, Medicare will pay so much, and then uh, they restrict how much the hospital or whatever or the doctor can pay, and then they pay a certain amount, and they tell you what you owe. The pharmaceutical stuff is even much more complicated. Uh, and there are situations where you can go and buy a drug and pay cash and actually pay less. If, if you go out and buy a drug and the, uh, the mental management, uh, health, the pharmaceutical management company has... Uh, ha has um, done a um, uh, gotten a rebate from the drug company, and then they get a, a special deal uh, from a, a company they're selling it to. For example, uh, maybe it's Kroger, and so we get a very complex relationship. So it's possible that you can buy a drug. And you can pay your copay, and your copay will actually pay for the cost of the drug. But all that extra money, the pharmacy benefit manager, the company, will make money off that. And it's for the patient or somebody who's even sophisticated 
it's very difficult to figure out where the money's going. Uh, the advantage plans can be also extremely complicated. What happens is that uh, they say you buy a Medicare Advantage plan from Humana, you have to pay a premium. The, fe the federal government gives a Humana some money, and uh, it's very difficult to figure out how much money Humana's made and how much you're getting. And there's more to it than that. Uh, my wife's mother lives in West Palm Beach, and she's got one of these Medicare plans. I'm not exactly sure what it's called. <clears throat> she had some uh, some uh, problems with her eyes. Now, her daughter is, is an operating room nurse at the VA who does mostly ophthalmology so she knows what a good, good ophthalmologist in town so she wanted to have her come up here where she could get her in touch with you know a really good ophthalmologist who, who would do a good job on her well the plan that she has not only with all the rest of the complexity is limited to where she can get this stuff done so it has to be done down in West Palm Beach she can't come up to Louisville and get that additional coverage. Doesn't work. So you, and not only does that not work, but the way I understood it, even the, they had to bargain away the Medicare capabilities of getting health care here or somewhere else, as opposed to where where she's located. So that they they've got all these little things that they add on that limit your access to care, depending upon where you are. Um, I mean, this is a nightmare. Let, let me just, I, I just, I wanna, we are the only first world country that does this. Uh, we were in uh, Italy a couple of years ago, and you know, when you're in Italy, you, and you have dinner at night, you sit at a little small table, that's right next to another little small table, it's very close. <laughs> And so you get to know the people that are eating next to you because you're almost sitting on their laps. And um, one night we were we were there and we, we were talking with a couple from couple from Australia. And well, one thing led to another. We got around to healthcare, and th these people were, uh, you know, they're obviously not poor people, or they wouldn't be in Italy from Australia. But they did okay. They were very comfortable. They were very happy with the system. It provided good care. They got a little bit of expense here and there. You know, they didn't feel uh, victimized. They didn't feel they had to have long waits. They were really very happy. So, you know, all the Scandinavian countries, uh, Belgium, Portugal, Germany, Switzerland, Singapore, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Netherlands, Saudi Arabia. You know, they call, you know every time somebody talks about trying to reform health care in this country, People start screaming about about socialism. Well, Saudi Arabia, Dubai, and United Arab Emirates all have systems where they provide health care to their citizens. And I don't think any of these countries would be examples of, of raging socialism. So, I mean, uh, why we happen to be one of the, literally the only uh, industrialized first world country in the world that does this is is really a terrible situation. Uh, I'm I'm hopeful that the citizens of this country will will um, recognize the opportunity they have 
with this upcoming election to do something about this? Well, hopefully our listeners will gain some information and be able to distinguish between the scare tactics of whether it's insurance companies or different political uh, folks who, who want to claim that expanding Medicare or providing uh, coverage as a basic human right it is uh, socialism is thrown around on just about any issue uh, right now. And, uh, Mike, I just had a question uh, regarding your mother-in-law's policy. Now, if she would have an accident out of state, would her insurance yeah, no, it, cover it, it that? Co okay. That's about the only thing it okay. covered. So okay. if you, you, you went out and something like that happened, but all of the other sort of uh, uh, elective aspects of health care, like going to an ophthalmologist in Louisville, was not covered. And not only, th and, and I, I, I could be wrong about this, but the way I understood it uh, is that in it, not only is the 20% the, the, the copayment not covered, but the, the actual Medicare coverage isn't covered either because that's negotiated away, you know, as part of this process of, 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 of accepting whatever this, I don't know what the name of the plan, you know, Medigap, whatever the medical coverage plan is, but with all these other things, there's so many different options, and you pay this, and you get that, and then you have to, you, you get this 27-page thing that has very small print that you have to wear a magnifying glass to read. All of the restrictions and limitations and things that you, 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 you have to deal with. Okay, and now, uh, just uh, go ahead, Dr. Th th this is an advantage plan, correct? Medicare Advantage? Yeah, something like that, yes. Okay. I, I don't remember what it was. What it, is a plan that's supposed to cover the component of Medicare uh, that, 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 that the component of Medicare doesn't coverage? So if 80%, it covers 80% of the cost of going to see an ophthalmologist in, in West Palm Beach, then this wraparound plan covers the other 20%. Right. It covers most of it. The, the advantage plans restrict who you can see. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, just a, another comment on um, the issue about surprise billing um, with these private equity firms buying more and more pieces of medical services and hospitals. Uh, I saw an article this morning and it, it just said that uh, first sentence in the article, hospitals owned by private equity firms rake in almost 30% more incomes that hospitals that aren't privately, uh, that aren't owned by private equity firms. And that was uh, research that was published in the um, uh, Journal of American Medical Association Internal Medicine. So... I think it's going to get worse before it gets well, better. Well, that, we, that's in, when we did the follow the money thing. Isn't that what we said? I mean, it, 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 can it get worse? It can. When you have the private equity and the hedge funds buying up practices, pharmacies, 
nursing homes and whatever else they can get their hands on. A nightmare from hell. The uh, LifePoint, which is a large for-profit company, headquarters in Nashville, and they have several hospitals in Kentucky, was recently bought by a private equity uh, company. And they know nothing about health care. They're just, uh, this is strictly for money. I think that's an extremely uh, difficult and big problem. We're going for another level. We're going from for-profit to uh, Wall Street. Do we have time for me to tell one more story? Sure. Too close. Yeah. Okay, about 20 years ago, there was a surgeon in town um, who, toward the end of his career, ran for for public office, and he was elected to the state legislature. I can't remember if he was elected as a senator or representative. He was a representative. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) And he gave a talk, a really good talk, at the Louisville Surgical Society. And I go, we're going back two or three decades almost. And a couple of things he said. He described the the process of the political process of sausage making. I'm not going to go into that, but the point I wanted to make. The other thing he said was very frankly that the 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 great majority of politicians don't understand health care at all. They really don't have any idea what's going on, and they're led around by the lobbyists. And that's what's really scary about what what the potential for the future is because it's not knowledgeable people making decisions about things that they understand. It's people who are sitting behind a desk and listening to some smooth-talking lobbyist who's getting paid a lot of money to give them some more money and then try to convince them to do something that's going to benefit whoever they're lobbying for. I would uh, surmise that most doctors don't understand what we're talking <laughs> about today. We don't, we're not taught this in medical school, and you don't get taught this in residency. There's no time. I mean, medicine's so complex. You don't have time to learn this. And so we are in a very precarious situation. And, and we're being controlled uh, by uh, executives uh, in the insurance companies and hospitals, for profit and not for profit, who uh, do not, doctors don't understand this at all. Well, hopefully, whoever's listening to us will take what we're saying and. And, and, and hopefully learn something from it. I, I uh, you know, again, we do have an opportunity, the citizens of this country, to change this. But um, they're going to have to go to the voting booths and do it, and they're going to have to try to understand what they want. If anybody's <clears throat> interested in learning more about it, there's a couple of books that I've been reviewing. One is called The Great American Healthcare Scam. Is written by Dr. David Belk, B-E-L-K-M-D, and his brother, Dr. Paul Belk, a Ph.D., who does uh, uh, medical mm-hmm. physics. And then there's another book called The American Sickness, which is written by Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. And uh, she has uh, gone into great detail about the American healthcare system. Uh, 
and it's a good resource for someone who is really interested. Yes, sir. Um, guys, another hour or close to it has uh, has vanished. I just want to remind uh, listeners that uh, you're listening to Single Payer Radio here on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5. And Single Payer Radio can be heard here on Forward Radio Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m., uh, we are a project of Kentuckians for single-payer health care. And to learn more about the group, you can go to kyhealthcare.org or follow the group on Facebook. And I think uh, Harriet and uh, Kay um, also have a Twitter account. And uh, if you want to contact our chairperson, Kay Tillo, she can be reached at nursenpo at aol.com, nursenpo at aol.com. And uh, we are, uh, the group still meets the first and third Thursday each month uh, virtually. So if you would like to um, uh, join us on Zoom, Send a note to Katello. She can get you uh, on our list, as well as uh, an invitation to our meetings. Doctors, any final thoughts? Uh, no. It was an enjoyable hour, as usual, and look forward to doing it again. Okay. Dr. Shively? Uh, the health industry is extremely complicated. Uh, part of the complications have been... Um, done on purpose uh, so that uh, for-profit companies can make more money. It's a shame that that's going on. We have to do something. We're spending 18% uh, of our GNP on health care. That's more than the entire GNP of England and almost uh, the equal to the amount of GNP of Germany, which is the fifth largest economy in the entire world. Okay, good deal. Dr. Shively, thanks for coming up from Campbellsville. And Dr. Flynn, um, have a nice trip back over to Cherokee Park <laughs> for single. Hey, thanks, Mark. <laughs> for single payer radio, this is Mark McKinley. Thanks.